Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. In this passage, the reason I, I chose to speak from this is this, this passage has just been really meaningful in my own life and in my own spiritual journey and very formative for me. So I hope that I can speak from that place and that it might be uh, formative for you as well. So I want to jump right in uh, with a story that I heard recently. I recently heard a story about a woman named Tony. Tony was 18 years old. She was living in the UK, um, and she was just beginning her time at university when she was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, her life obviously immediately changed as she began radiation therapy and chemotherapy and, and all of these treatments. Um, as you would expect, she felt really, really sick and really tired, and she was losing her hair. Um, but the good news is that over time, her treatments were, were working, and eventually her cancer went into remission around the time that she graduated from university. So she's finishing university. She has this renewed sense of, of life and joy, and you would think that she would go on into whatever she studied in university, but um, she said that as she graduated, she actually immediately changed her next steps after graduating with this renewed sense of life. Even though she had never considered it before, she actually did pretty poorly in science classes. She was so inspired by the amazing medical team that had cared for her and really brought her healing and really saved her life that she actually decided to go on and study medicine herself. So she began training, and of course, it takes a number of years to become a doctor, but after, after her time studying, she actually became a doctor at the exact same hospital where she had received her cancer treatments. Isn't that amazing, right? Tony was, was writing about this. I found an article um, about her experience, and, and she said this. My experience with cancer has certainly made me think about my role as a doctor in a different way. I can look my patients in the eye and genuinely empathize with them because I've been through it myself. I can take extra care to explain things in simple, straightforward ways because I know just how important that is. There's no doubt, no doubt in my mind that if I had not had cancer, I would not be where I am today. I think Tony's story is really powerful. Her experience of healing that she experienced completely changed her life, and it led her to become an agent of healing as a doctor. She wanted to give others the same type of healing that she had experienced. I think we see this pattern happen a lot in our world. It's not just these profound stories of, of people who have healed becoming doctors. I think we see it in a lot of ways. We see it where, where chefs have a great meal and then they, they wanna go on and be a great chef. We see it where musicians hear a great piece of music and then they want to go on and become musicians. Teachers who grew up with great School teachers go on to become teachers, and so on, and so on. There's something about those who have truly experienced something and been changed by it, that they become the best people at giving that experience to others. Have you ever noticed that? Can you think of someone in your life who has, who has been that, who has had that experience? Well, the reason I share this story and this type of, about this type of person is because it actually reminds me of the text that we just read about the baptism of Jesus, right? We see Jesus being baptized. He has this profound experience of receiving the Holy Spirit. He hears the Father say, you are my beloved. And then he goes on to live a life of love and healing for others. Just like Tony, he goes on to live out of his identity 
as an agent of love in the world. It's out of that overflow of his belovedness in God the Father that he can be empowered by the Holy Spirit to love others. And we, as Christians, as followers of Christ, were invited to do the same. So I want to look at this passage from the Gospel of Mark and just see what it might mean for us to receive our identity as God's beloved sons and daughters and respond by becoming agents of love in the world. So let's, let's jump in. Like Lucas said, we're just taking a pause on our series through the book of Acts today. And many of you know Acts um, of the Apostles was written by Luke, who also wrote one of the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all the four Gospels, they do have a lot in common, but they also each give us kind of a different perspective on the life of Jesus. It's almost like the life of Jesus is, the, is, is like a house or something inside of a house. And each of the Gospels is a window, right? We're kind of looking at the same thing, but through a different angle. Um, and the interesting thing about Luke, right, who wrote Acts, is he was a doctor. So he wrote with sort of a precision, accuracy, some technical language. But Mark, on the other hand, what's interesting about Mark is he wrote with a sense of urgency. <laughs> like Mark is the shortest gospel, right? The word immediately shows up in his gospel 41 times, which I think is super interesting. And to me, that's not random, but I think it shows how quickly he wanted us to get to the most important moments in Jesus's life. He gives us very little information about Jesus's childhood or the early years of his life, which is not to say they weren't important, but it's as if Mark really wants to get to the highlights, to the meat, right from the start. And I think we'll see this baptism of Jesus text. It's Mark 1, verse 9. It's nine verses in. I mean, he really gets, he basically starts his gospel with the baptism of Jesus. And so we'll see that just how important to Mark this baptism really is. So I kind of want to just go through the story. If you'll, if you'll join me, maybe open up your imagination, try to play your, place yourself in this scene. I don't know if any of you have been to the Holy Land, but put yourself maybe at what you think the Jordan River might look like. And I want to talk us through this story because I think it opens up some of the beauty of it. So the story begins with John, uh, John the Baptist at the Jordan River. John's preaching about the kingdom of heaven, preaching about repentance, and he's baptizing people in the river. And then Jesus arrives to be baptized. Mark kind of glosses over this in his gospel, but I think it's kind of funny. Um, if we look at Matthew's gospel, we see how John, he thinks he knew better than Jesus. So he tries to tell him, you don't need to be baptized, right? He's been baptizing all these people. I need to be baptized by you. And in a sense, John's right. But Jesus quickly kind of shuts that down and reminds him, no, I, I desire and need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. So thankfully, John doesn't really argue with Jesus, and they, they go into the river to be baptized. So there they are, standing in this river, water kind of rushing all around them, when John dips Jesus under the water. And then he lifts him out of the water, and here's the, here's the key moment. Suddenly, the heavens open. And the Holy Spirit descends like a dove onto Jesus. And as this is happening, a voice from heaven speaks, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. I've always found this to be a really interesting moment in Jesus's life. I kind of feel like John. A lot of questions kind of come up in, in me when I think about Jesus being baptized, right? When I really slow down and think about this moment, like, why did Jesus have to get baptized? How did the Holy Spirit descend like, like a dove? It doesn't really make sense. Did Jesus really hear an audible voice speaking from heaven? And how were all the people who were watching reacting to this scene? 
And I think these are all good questions. Um, I think it would be helpful to try to look for the answers for, to them. But for the sake of our time today, we're not going to get into all that. Um, but what we're going to focus on is this. The baptism of Jesus is the key moment for Jesus to fully receive his identity as the beloved son of God. The baptism of Jesus is the key moment for Jesus to fully receive his identity as the beloved son of God. Now, I think it's important to say what I'm not saying when I say that. I'm not saying that Jesus didn't already have a relationship with the Holy Spirit or with God the Father. I'm not saying that he didn't know that he was beloved before his baptism. I'm sure he experienced that in his childhood. And of course, we can't separate the humanity of Jesus from the divinity of Jesus. He knows. He's the eternal son of God. He has had this identity for all eternity. In fact, one of the beautiful things about this moment in Scripture, this baptism, is it's, it's actually one of the few moments recorded in Scripture where we pretty clearly see an image of the Trinity, right? We see all three persons of the Trinity interacting in one moment. The Holy Spirit is there as a dove descending on Jesus. The Father is there speaking words from heaven to Jesus. And, of course, Jesus is there receiving his identity as the beloved Son of God. So... Even Jesus himself, fully God, fully man, was reminded of his identity as the beloved. He, he, in a sense, needed to know in that moment that God loved him and was pleased with him no matter what. And I think that's because this is a foundational truth that will set Jesus up for the most important moments of his life. Now, again, after saying what I'm not saying, I also need to just make a quick uh, theology note here. Um, I might sound like a theology nerd, but I think this is really important to, to note. Throughout this sermon, you're going to hear me use father language to refer to God. And I want to be extremely clear that while God is referred to as a father throughout the Old and the New Testament, God's not an earthly father in the way that we would often think about it. God is not male, nor is God female. But when we look at humankind, which God created, Male and female are created in God's image. And there are times in scripture where God is referred to with mother language, right? Hosea 13.8, God is described as a mother bear. Isaiah 66.12, God is pictured as a comforting mother. Matthew 23.37, God is described as a mother hen. So we see in scripture, God is referred to, God is painted in both father language and both mother language. But at the same time, <laughs> God transcends our ideas of what it means to be an earthly father or an earthly mother. So hopefully, I just want to broaden kind of our understanding and our language, um, even though today I will be using father language because that's kind of what's in this text. So I'd be happy to talk more about that if you guys want to find me after the sermon or something or if you have any thoughts or questions. Okay, back to the story, back to the baptism, all right? So Jesus has been baptized and... He's heard the Father call him the Beloved. Now, you might expect after this, this intimate moment with the Holy Spirit and the Father that Jesus would come out of the water and just immediately begin praising God or that he would just rush out into the streets to preach the good news about this experience or maybe that he would just grab a towel and relax and dry off and, and have dinner. Um, but no, Jesus does something pretty unexpected here. And I think we often miss it. Jesus doesn't go praise God or go preach the gospel or, or even just simply have dinner. Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness to fast. 
verse 12, says that the Spirit immediately sent Jesus out into the wilderness. It's after this intimate moment with the Holy Spirit descending like a dove on Jesus. Then the Spirit sends him out into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. Not only to fast, but to be tempted by Satan. I'm not sure how I would feel if I was Jesus in that moment. Um, I'd probably be traumatized if I ever saw a dove again. I don't think I would want to see a dove ever again in my life. But, but in all seriousness, I think we might see this as if the Holy Spirit's trying to punish Jesus, like forcing him out. But I, it's not that. It's actually, it's not, it's not the Holy Spirit leading Jesus astray. Um, I think even though we wouldn't expect it, there's a connection between the baptism of Jesus and him receiving his belovedness and then going out into the wilderness to fast and to be tempted. It's in the wilderness, this, this place of exhaustion, this place of loneliness, this place of, of hunger, that Jesus puts his identity to the test. Is he really the beloved son of God if he has nothing to show for it? This wilderness experience, in my opinion, shows Jesus' identity cannot be found in anything except God's love, not food, not friends, not an easy life without trials, nothing but the Father's love. So while fasting from food may be making Jesus' body weak, it's making his spirit strong. It's giving him the power to resist temptation while fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know about you, but if I fast from one meal, I'm like hangry. Like I skip lunch and dinner starts at four that day, right? Um, Try 120 meals, right? 40 days if you eat three, I mean, I sometimes four meals a day. So anyway, 120 minimum meals, right? Um, I don't know if I could resist the temptation at that moment. But again, um, Mark's gospel is pretty straightforward. But if we look at Matthew's version, I think we see a few more details about what this this fasting and this temptation really looked like. And the first temptation is the one I'm going to focus on today. I think it's really, really interesting. Satan goes right to the heart of what Jesus has been wrestling with, his identity. Satan says, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It's as if he's saying, prove that you are the beloved son of God. It would be so easy. All you have to do is give yourself something to eat. And of course, Jesus, we know that he could turn stones into bread. We'll eventually see him go on to do much more miraculous things. But if we look, um, and you know, of course we know he's hungry, right? But I think if we look, we, we see that Jesus knows, Jesus knows that there's something much deeper than physical hunger. Something even more real in that moment than his desire for food. And we know he had a desire for food, but there's something even somewhat more real than that. Because while he may be physically starving, he's spiritually full. Why? Because he's been feasting on the very words of God that were just spoken over him. His meals have been these words, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. You are my son, the beloved. You are my son. No proving, no defending, no if you are the son of God, but you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Jesus knows who he is. He's been feasting. He's been chewing on these words, meditating on what they mean, receiving them as the truth, the foundational truth of his identity. So even even in the midst of that hunger, He has the strength to respond to Satan's temptation, and he actually uses the very words of God 
to, to combat Satan's temptation. He says, don't you know it's written? Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus in that very moment is living proof of that truth. He has literally been living, literally, not on bread, not on food, but on the words of God that were spoken over him. He's been resting in this reality for 40 days and 40 nights without anything to distract him from it. And that's what gave him that power to resist Satan's temptation. And it not only gave him the power to resist the temptation, it gave him the power to go on and respond by, by living out his belovedness, by living a life of love, for others. So let's look at this next part of the, the scripture. After fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and being tempted by Satan, verse 14 says that Jesus goes out to Galilee to proclaim the good news of God. Now, most scholars um, would call this the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. So it's only after receiving his identity as the beloved. It's, o- it's only after he really rests in it in the wilderness that he can respond by beginning his ministry. And I think this deepens the beauty of Jesus's baptism because it it took place before the wilderness. It took place before he did anything in his public ministry. I mean, could it be any clearer that his identity is not based in anything he could do to prove himself worthy, but purely in God's love? It's from that place, being rooted in his his deep sense of belovedness. It's from that place that he can go out to proclaim good news of God's love. He can usher in the kingdom of God by preaching good news to the poor and freedom to the prisoners. He can heal the sick and give sight to the blind. He can set the oppressed free and even bring resurrection to the dead. That is what Jesus can do out of that power. And so simply put, Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit to love others out of the overflow of his belovedness in God the Father. Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit to love others out of the overflow of his belovedness in God the Father. Now, if you're anything like me, if I was listening to someone preach this, I'd probably be like, oh, that's great. Like, I'm so happy for Jesus. You know, that is, oh. But what what does it mean for us? What does it mean for me? Why is this... Why is this good news for for you and me? Well, I think the good news is this. The same voice that called Jesus the beloved is calling you and me the beloved. And there's a lot of verses, a lot of places in scripture where I could illustrate this, but I just wanted to find something short and punchy. And I think 1 John chapter 3 says what I'm trying to say pretty simply. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are, beloved We are God's children now. We are God's children. We are God's beloved. The same words that were spoken over Jesus in his baptism have been spoken over us. You're going to get sick of me saying this, but you are the beloved. With you, God is well pleased. The Father's voice is speaking these words over us, but can we hear it? Are we listening to the voice that is calling us the beloved. Because in order to really receive and embrace our true identity, we need to hear that voice that's calling us the beloved. Now, I'm not necessarily saying we need to hear it audibly, although that that might be the case, but I'm saying we need to hear it spiritually. We need to hear it in the same way that Jesus heard it and went on to receive it in the wilderness, the way he really embraced it 
chewed on it, meditated on it. Um, Henry Nouwen, who's one of my favorite writers um, and thinkers, he's a renowned Catholic pastor, priest, uh, and author who devoted much of his life to teaching kind of around this topic. He said it like this, if you can hear that voice that speaks to you from all eternity to all eternity, your life will become more and more the life of the beloved because that is who you are. But I believe most of us have trouble hearing it. We have, we have trouble hearing the voice of the one who calls us the beloved. Most of us, if we're honest, we don't find it easy to hear it. We don't find it easy to receive our identity as beloved sons, beloved daughters of God. And, and I think one of the reasons that we have so much trouble hearing this is, is, is simple. We live in a noisy world. Right? Major cities like Chicago come with so much noise that we can't control. Trains running 24-7, rush hour traffic, construction. They're actually redoing uh, one of my cross streets right now. And I've lived in the city almost 10 years. I've never heard them start construction at 4 a.m. 4 a.m. <laughs> and it was the loud kind of construction. Um, that was fun. Thankfully, I, I turned on my white noise app, full blast, and fell back asleep. But Maybe you have neighbors who like really love loud music or partying. I think we've probably all been there. But the list just, the list just goes on, right? And on, on top of all that uncontrollable noise, many of us choose to just drown out the silence of our lives, right? When we drive or take the CTA, we listen to podcasts or audiobooks. When we get home, we turn on the television or if you're me, hey, Google, turn on whatever music I want to listen to, right? We call a friend. We start a conversation. None of these things are bad. None of these things are bad, but they're, they're ways that we distract ourselves from the silence. We feel that need. And all of this external noise just makes it difficult for us to hear the voice of the one who's calling us beloved. But I think there, there's an even deeper problem than all that external noise. You know, after living here for almost 10 years, I've, I've found some ways to find silence amidst the city's noise. I'm sure many of you have. I'd love to hear your tips. But, you know, we can go to a quiet park. Uh, we can go over to the lakefront. Probably not on the weekend, but on the weekdays, it can be quiet over there. Um, we can listen to instrumental music or you know, put on our white noise apps. There's ways to get around the external noise. But even, even when we do quiet the external noise, many of us notice that we live with a sense of internal noise. Noise just constantly buzzes inside of us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in that inner life that we all have. Our minds fill with thoughts of our never-ending to-do lists. The news and social media beg for our attention, and we just can't keep track of it all. I've actually seen a few different studies. I was trying to find one, but I found a few studies that say um, Americans, we actively use our smartphones between three to five hours a day, and that's not including work, which, whew, that's, I don't even have to explain that. That's just a lot, right? The noise of just constant texting emailing, whatever apps we use, it just never ends. And even when we put our phones down or put them on Do Not Disturb, we still face the noise of our own hearts. The sadness, the pain of our world, is, it's unavoidable. This sense of, of anxiousness, loneliness, this general just emotional heaviness weighs on us day after day. How do we process this? How do we respond to our interior lives without getting overwhelmed by all the noise. And I say process because getting to that place of inner silence is not avoiding, it's not pretending that that's not there. 
but it's, it's really getting to the heart of it. We need to find ways to process the noise inside of us, not avoid it, not ignore it, but process it in the presence of God so that we might get to a place of interior stillness and peace. I'm going to say more about that in a minute. But all of this noise, the internal noise, the external noise, makes it difficult for us to hear the voice of the one who's calling us the beloved. Now, not only do we face the interior noise, but I, I think we're also filled with noise from just the unrealistic demands and expectations of modern Western culture. The voice of our culture speaks loudly, and it says that we can only be loved if we prove ourselves worthy. We can only be loved if we, if we do the right things, if we're productive enough, or if we contribute well to society. We have trouble hearing that voice that calls us the beloved before we do anything, because in, in our culture, we have to earn it. Our culture is screaming that we can only find love if we prove ourselves worthy. And I think one of the standards for finding being worthy of love in American culture is experience, right? Professional experience in our careers, cultural experience like traveling or going to new restaurants, entertainment experience like, like sporting events or concerts, right? Many of us are chasing that next big experience. Think about it, I actually found myself asking someone this today. What's one of the first questions we ask when we meet someone? What do you do, <laughs> right? What do you do? And we mean for, for work or for fun, it doesn't have to be our careers, it could be anything. But I find myself asking that all the time and to a certain extent, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, our identity is in a sense, as, a, as, as humans, we're kinda, they're kinda based on what we do. There's not, there's not something totally wrong with that, right? But when our identity is primarily based on the experiences we have, whether they're professional, cultural, entertainment, whatever they are, we will constantly be chasing more experiences and trying to find our meaning there. And the reality, I think many of us learned this in 2020, is that these experiences can be taken from us at any moment. Do I find my meaning in Experiencing new cultures or traveling, well, that was taken from us in 2020. Do I find meaning in my professional career experience? Well, what happens when I get laid off? Totally unexpectedly. Our identity has to be rooted in unconditional belovedness or it can be taken from us like that. We need a belovedness that can withstand the wilderness, a belovedness that can give us spiritual strength when everything around us is failing. Because inevitably, you and I will face the same temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness. Satan, the father of lies, continues to lie to us today, saying that we're not enough, we're not loved because we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not skinny enough, we're not productive enough. What will we do when we hear those words spoken over us? What will we do when we face the temptation to give in to those lies, to believe them, to try to prove our identity that we can finally be loved? But like Jesus, the only way that we can truly experience and receive our identity as beloved children of God is by resting on those words that are continually being spoken over us. You are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Like Jesus, we need rhythms of rest and retreat, retreating from the noise of our world and getting to that quiet place where we can hear the voice and the gentle whisper of God. But how? 
how do we actually receive this? How do we actually practice this? I think there's a lot of ways to do this. And, and to be honest, it'll look different depending on your life experience, depending on your family of origin, your personality. Like, this will look different for each one of us. So I'm not trying to give a, a one-size-fits-all solution here by any means. This is a lifelong journey. Um, this is not something that happens once and, and is done. But it's something that if we return to regularly, even daily, I think we can experience some transformation. So the practice that I want to offer to us as a way to help us embrace our identity as beloved sons, beloved daughters of God is the practice of silence. With the combination of our very noisy city that we talked about and the noise of our interior lives, if we want to hear the voice of the one who's calling us beloved, then we must embrace the practice of silent prayer. Now, whenever we talk about prayer, I like to kind of give a, a simple definition. This is one that I've heard. Uh, some say that prayer is having a conversation with God. Now, I think in many ways that's, that's true, that's good, but I think in a lot of ways prayer is a lot more than that. But, but for the sake of our time today, it's definitely not less than that, right? Prayer is a dialogue with God, and yet many of us turn prayer into a monologue rather than a dialogue. We do a lot of talking and very little listening. And that's why silent prayer is a practice. It doesn't come easy to most of us. It must be sought after. It must be learned. It must be put into practice in our everyday lives. And this is not a new way to pray. Jade um, spoke about this a few weeks ago, back in August. She did a sermon on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'd recommend going back to that. Jesus himself embraced the practice of silence. The church throughout history has embraced the practice of silence, and we should too. I think one of the most powerful examples of why we need to practice silence comes from a story in 1 Kings chapter 19. And in this story, uh, we see the Lord wanted to show himself to Elijah. So he has Elijah go up and stand on a mountain where the Lord was going to pass by and reveal himself. I'll pick up the story in verse 11. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. A great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? See, God didn't speak to Elijah in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire, but in a gentle whisper. How often do we think that God will speak to us in loud obvious ways. We're listening to a voice that will literally come from nowhere and speak loud, obvious words to us. But maybe, maybe we're listening for the wrong voice. Because if we want to hear the Lord's voice, I think we have to listen for a gentle, quiet whisper. The practice of silent prayer can open us up to that whisper of God, that voice that is saying, you are my beloved and you I am well pleased. And the very core reason we practice silent prayer, it actually isn't just to hear God's voice. It's not even just to be in silence for the sake of quieting and being in silence. The core reason we practice this is to be present with God 
period, uh, Rich Viotis, who's a pastor and author from Queens in New York City. So he knows the noise of the city, helps us to see why we practice silence. It's in his book, The Deeply Formed Life. I got to give a shout out. Is anyone doing the Deeply Formed Life track? Yeah? Okay. So every other Wednesday, first and third Wednesday, we're going through this book together. It just started last Wednesday. So I'm going to make an executive decision that if you want to hop in, October 20th, I believe, will be the next, next one. Buy the book and hop in. It's, it's really good. Um, okay, sorry, shameless plug. Um, but anyway, Rich, Rich Viotis says this about silence. There's been much talk in our culture about the benefits of mindfulness. And the difference between mindfulness and silent prayer is communion with a person. The object of mindfulness is often better psychological or physical health, which are very important things, but the object of silent prayer is communion with God. The object of silent prayer is communion with God. Again, Jesus himself practiced this rhythm of communion with the Father regularly throughout his life. One of the most notable examples is, is what we've just been talking about, where Jesus went into the wilderness after his baptism. But it's not the only example. Melissa, a few weeks ago in our Prayers of Jesus series, talked about how Jesus made a habit of regularly retreating to quiet places for prayer throughout his life. Whether it was the wilderness or mountainsides or private homes, he escaped the noise and the busyness of life to just be with the Father, to just rest in his identity as the beloved. And like Jesus, we too need to retreat from the noise, the external, the internal, the cultural noise, to listen to the one who calls us the beloved. In our culture that is obsessed with experience and productivity, silent prayer is a countercultural way for us to simply be with God, not produce or accomplish anything. Now, as I get toward the end here, to, to kind of close us out, I just want to Give us a really brief way for how we can actually practice this. If you're listening and you're like, this is great, um, but I don't actually think I'm going to do this, but I want to. Like, how can I actually, actually do this? So if I've piqued your interest, here's just a really, really, really simple guide. So start by finding a quiet place. It might be difficult. You may have to leave your apartment or your home, or you may have to go to your apartment or home, uh, wherever you can. Maybe put in headphones. I really recommend a white noise app. Um, music is great, but sometimes it can distract you. You can start listening to the music rather than really embracing the silence. Try to posture yourself in a way that's open to God's presence. Now, that might mean that you actually adjust the way you sit. You may choose to kneel. Uh, you may choose to stand if you're tired. <laughs> um, but just try to be in an open posture where you're open to um, hearing from God. And when you get distracted, and I say when, not if, because it will definitely happen, try to see those distractions as an opportunity to return to God. He's, he's there to welcome you with open arms. And honestly, it will probably feel pretty boring. It'll probably feel pretty uneventful. That's okay. Um, the goal is not to accomplish anything, even to accomplish a spiritual experience. The goal is just to simply be with God. Um, I, I hesitated to share this or not, but I think it's too good. I, I heard this one way to practice silence that I found really, really helpful. And this morning I decided I, have, I just have to share it. This one uh, woman taught, taught me this. She taught me when I practice silence to start by silencing my body. Start by silencing my body to listen to my words. Then silence my words to listen to my thoughts. Silence my thoughts to listen to my heart beating. Silence my heart 
to listen to my spirit and then silenced my spirit to listen to God's spirit, bringing it back, the true object of our, of our silent prayer, of any prayer, really, is communion with God. So I want to invite, I want to invite you to try that at some point this week. Um, see how it feels. See if God wants to do something there. Again, it might feel boring or uneventful, but I just invite you into that. I truly believe that when this practice of silent prayer is cultivated in our lives over time, and it takes time, um, I truly believe that we begin to become the kinds of people who can spiritually hear God's quiet whisper in a very, very noisy world. So to close, I want to bring us back where we started. Remember Tony's story, this story about someone who experienced this deep sense of healing and then went on to be an agent of healing in the world. She was an inspirational person, and we have people like that all throughout our world, and the same is true for Jesus. After his baptism, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to love others out of the overflow of his belovedness in God the Father, and we too, We too are beloved sons and daughters of God who are called to be agents of God's love and healing in the world. So what does it look like? What does it look like for you and for me to become agents of love and healing as an overflow of our belovedness in Christ? Well, we must first receive that truth. We must receive that truth that we are beloved sons and daughters. Really receive it and embrace it as the foundational truth of our identity and then we can respond by being agents of God's love in the world. That's the invitation. So would you pray with me to close our time? God, we thank you for the words that were spoken over Jesus. And we thank you for those words that are being spoken over us, that we are your beloved daughters, we are your beloved sons, and you are well pleased with us. We ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would more deeply and deeply receive that whether that be in times of prayer, times in our daily lives. May we truly, deeply receive that identity as your beloved children, and may we go out to be agents of your love to our neighbors in this city and and throughout, throughout this world, Lord. Would you empower us with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.